Uh, we want to invite, or want to welcome all you guys who are joining us for church today. Uh, it's been kind of like a crazy morning for me, actually, uh, from just things at home and getting here quickly and all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, I just want to give a, a quick shout out to our AV team. Can we give them a hand for their hard work? Uh, they, some weird stuff going on today, so I appreciate you guys and how hard you're working to kind of move past some of the obstacles that we're facing. For any of you guys who know football, the audiovisual team is like the offensive line in football. You don't notice them until something's wrong, you know? And so if you ever have a tendency or a, a temptation when you hear something to turn around and look at them, just don't. They know, and they're doing their best. So thank you guys so much for all your guys' hard work. I'm so glad to have every single one of you guys with us, especially those who are joining us online. If you're watching from Arizona or Alaska, Southern California, or wherever you're watching from, thank you so much for joining us. We are starting a brand new series today, and that means it's a great day to be at church because we're all on the same page. Um, we just finished the series, and usually in between series, we kind of like come up with a standalone, kind of like give people a break from this concept, but for this, for some reason, God is moving us to start a brand new series today, and I'm excited to introduce it to you. It's going to be kind of different. Uh, I'm kind of out of my comfort zone with this series, but the series is called The Worst Sermon Ever, and my hope and prayer is not that that's what you experience here in the next couple of weeks, but this sermon is called The Worst Sermon Ever, and um, there is a subtitle, and if you can't see it, it doesn't mean you're old. For, for those of you who are on the older side, you're like, I can't see that. It's okay. I made it really small on purpose so you can't see it. Because I wanted you to focus first on this title, The Worst Sermon Ever. Why are we calling this series The Worst Sermon Ever? Because if you can read the subtitle, it says, A Study of the Book of Ecclesiastes. A Study of the Book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a really interesting book. And um, you may not know it, but actually the setting of Ecclesiastes or how it's, how it's written is kind of in a format like this where there's a gathering, which we'll get to in a little bit, and there's a teacher who's talking about stuff. And so it is kind of like a sermon. But if you've ever re read Ecclesiastes, this would be like the worst sermon ever. It is not encouraging. It is not inspiring. It is not motivating. It doesn't make you feel get good. It actually will make you feel worse when you leave after hearing what he has to say. If I preached a sermon like Ecclesiastes at church, after I left this room, some of you would walk up to me and say, are you okay? Is, is something the matter? And some special individuals would, would come up to me and show love to me and care for me. The rest of you guys would talk to each other and be like, hey, is pastor Okay. Like, what happened? What happened in his life? What happened at home? Is he okay? And then in our small groups, our wonderful small groups that mean all over the city would probably get together, and one of the prayer requests, someone would be like, I think we need to pray for Pastor Chris, because clearly something's going on in his life, and he's having some issues. So if I preach a sermon like this, you guys would be like, man, what is going on? That's why we're calling this sermon series the worst sermon ever. Now, what we're doing in this series is not what we normally do. In this church, we often... Uh, preach sermons that we call topical. So we have, we feel like God is leading us to a certain topic or idea, and then we'll explore it for the next few weeks. That's not what we're doing. In this series, we're just going to study the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to go chapter by chapter, generally verse by verse. And so this is kind of like a real, just like Bible study kind of series that we're going to be focusing on. And here's the thing. I don't know how long this is going to go. 
I usually to be like, oh, we have a six-part series, a five-part series. I have no idea how long this sermon series is going to go. The reason why is today, my plan was to do two chapters, chapters one and two. And I looked at the whole kind of like book of Ecclesiastes. There's 12 chapters. And I was like, perfect. We'll do two chapters a week, six-part series. Perfect. That's like kind of normal, a little bit on the longer side, but you know, that's good. So I began to prepare the sermon for chapters one and two. This sermon covers chapter one, verses one, two, and three, and that's it. As I was writing this sermon, I was like, oh, we can't get to chapter two. All we can do are three verses. So I have no idea how long the sermon series is going to go. We may end up just doing like, spend a whole sermon on one verse maybe. Or maybe we might do a chapter. Or maybe we might do two. I don't really know how God is going to lead us and what God is going to do in this series. But even though this is what I'm calling, and it's kind of a joke, as you guys know, the worst sermon ever, this series has, yes, a subtitle, a study in the book of Ecclesiastes, but it also has what I'm calling, I don't know if this is the right word for it, but a super title. What's, what's the opposite? Does anybody know what the opposite of a subtitle is? I don't know. I'm going to call it a super title because super is like above, right? And that one you probably can't see, but that says what we can learn from is the super title of this series. So the actual se- title of this series is what we can learn from the worst sermon ever a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Because as you read this, you're going to realize that there is so much truth and so much power in the words found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. So we'll take however long we need. God is going to lead us chapter by chapter, maybe verse by verse, as we seek to understand the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, It's a little hot. It's a little hot. Can we bring it down? Um, I'll talk louder. I'll talk louder. So with that, can we, we're going to get into the message today, and we're going to pray. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for this wonderful day. Lord, I thank you, God, that we can come and worship together, and we can sit at your feet as you lead us through the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord, um, I don't know who needs to hear these messages. I don't know what people are going through, really, but God, you do. And so I ask, God, that you would do what you do best, Father, and that you would reach us and bring conviction and passion and change into our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. By the way, last week, if you guys were here, uh, we preached a ser- I preached a sermon, and kind of the key point was don't have conviction without change, and we talked about that. And, and I talked about this, like, thing, this, this interaction that I have with people when they come after sermons. Hey, you know, let's just take it easy. We'll just kind of keep it normal. We can fix it later. We can fix it later. Um, but I have these interactions with people where they uh, come to me and say, hey, thank you so much for the message. And I talked about how last week, like, I appreciate that, but the thought I have is, you know, okay, you appreciate it, but how are you going to change? Like, what are you going to do? And I'll tell you, last week was super awkward. Like, I had so many awkward conversations with people. People were like, hey, so good message? I'll think about it. Okay, I know. I'll think about it. It was, it was hilarious last week. Like, so many people were like, just didn't know how to talk to me. But uh, I thank you guys so much for all for that. So this series is the worst sermon ever. We're starting in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So let's get right into it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. Key point here in chapter 1, verse 1, is the word teacher here. The word teacher here is, uh, it comes from a Hebrew word, and the word is koholeth, koholeth. And the koholeth that is translated teacher actually means someone who has gathered people. Someone who has gathered people. It's someone who has called people together. And in this situation, he's called them together so he can teach something. 
right? So that's why he's called the teacher. So he's gathered people together. This is why, if you didn't know, this book is called Ecclesiastes. Have you ever wondered why is it even called Ecclesiastes? It's because the Greek word ekklesia means a gathering, a gathering. It's a gathering of people. And this was the original term for the word church in the New Testament. Do you guys know the word church is not a Hebrew or Greek word? It's actually a German word. So the original word for church in the Bible was ekklesia. It was a gathering of people. And so that's why this book is called the book of Ecclesiastes, because it is a gathering. The second thing we learn from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, is he is the son of David, and his position is the king in Jerusalem. Now, most people believe that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, the actual, the literal, you know, first-generation son of David. He was the son that David had, and he was also king in Jerusalem. He was also believed to be the wisest king that ever lived, the richest, most powerful, like they're, they're in the golden age. So a lot of people believe that Solomon was the writer of Ecclesiastes, some people think that actually when it says the son of David, it could mean just generally like a descendant. So it could have been a latter king, a later king. We're not really sure. But most people think it's Solomon. Now what's important about this is not necessarily exactly who it is, but where this person is in life. And um, it, it makes the most sense to believe that this is Solomon as is related to the book of Proverbs. Right before that, Proverbs, and then you have Ecclesiastes. See, what I want you guys to understand about the writer of Ecclesiastes is where this person is in life. When this person wrote Proverbs, this person was like, if you could remember when you were a new grad entering into the workforce, or like as, as you entered your first day at the job, right, where you graduated college, you have your degree fresh in hand, and you're starting your career. Do you remember how that felt? Like you were super excited, you were like wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, you're like ready to change the world. Like, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to make a difference. You guys remember that, that feeling? Some of you guys are like, no, barely, I barely remember that. That's Ecclesiastes, actually, that's Ecclesiastes. But the teacher or the wise man in Proverbs, he was really excited about life. He, he could see everything made sense to him. You know, like I think of myself in college. Like when I, some of you guys know me when I was in college, um, this may surprise you, but I was a very energetic person when I was in college. Like, I had so much energy, like a weird amount of energy when I was in college. Like, I had so much energy that I would literally run from class to class for no reason. I wasn't late. I just had so much energy. I had to do something. I would run to class. I would, and this is a secret. This is a secret I've never told anybody. Because I did this alone, and nobody ever saw me do this. And this is actually really embarrassing. But I used to, you know, I, I went to PUC. I was in Newton Hall. And then Newton Hall, they have a, I lived on fourth floor. And there's many, many floors. And in each floor, there's like a, a, a set of a flight of stairs. When I went to class, I don't know why I would do this, but I would jump the flight of stairs. And then I would roll when I landed. Weird amount of energy. I don't know why I did this. I just did it. It was just like, woo. I was just like so happy in life. And it was like, that's how like, I, when I look at the book of Proverbs, like, oh, that, the Proverbs author, that's where they're at. So excited, ready to change the world. Everything makes sense. They're going to go. And like, I remember when I entered my first church, it was like, yeah, let's go change the world. Let's go change the church. Let's go evangelize and do all these amazing things. Yes, yes, yes. Like that's where I was. That's the Pro book of Proverbs. For the book of Proverbs writer, Solomon, this is how things worked. A plus B equals C. Everything made sense. Obviously, if you do this, then this will happen, and then this will happen. Everything 
makes sense. The book of Ecclesiastes is like years later. And what happens to most people where that energy gets sucked out of them, burnt out happens, burnout happens, they start to lose that, that naivete, right? They start to lose that excitement and they start to be a little bit more jaded, a little bit more cynical. And that's where some of you guys are at. And so for Proverbs, it was A plus B equals C. You know what it was for Ecclesiastes? For the writer of Ecclesiastes, at one time he said, Proverbs makes sense, A plus B equals C. Ecclesiastes, it's A plus B equals who cares? <laughs> A plus B, who, is, who even cares? Like it doesn't even matter what happens in life. Like it's all meaningless and we're going to get to that. So for, for the writer of Proverbs, the reason why I said A plus B equals C, he says, if you are righteous... God will bless you. That's how life works. It was simple to him. If you are wicked, God will curse you. If you, have some, if you are doing good things, good things will come. And then in Ecclesiastes, he's like, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. We're going to get to that, kind of his main points. So this is where this, uh, this writer, the teacher, or Solomon, is at. Here's the other thing that you have to know about the book of Ecclesiastes. There are actually two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. Most people think there's just one. That it's just the teacher who was talking about all the stuff. But there's actually two voices that come through the book of Ecclesiastes. One is the teacher, the Koholeth, who is doing most of the talking. But look at this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. It says, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. So at the end of the book, you have this verse, or this section, verses 9 through 14 of chapter 12, where he talks about the teacher. It's no longer the teacher talking. So this is, this is where it's introduced the second voice of Ecclesiastes. This is why this is important. The reason why this is important is because the book of Ecclesiastes, the purpose of it is found in this person's thoughts, not the teacher's. So I'm going to identify them as the teacher and the author. The teacher is the guy who talks through chapter 1 to chapter 12. The author is who speaks from chapter 12, 9 through 14. You guys with me? Different people are talking. And this is, the reason why this is important is because the teacher says a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. And some of it is good. And some of it is real depressing. Some of it is kind of nice. And some of it is like, why should I even live anymore? And then the author, at the end of the whole thing, at the end of it, in chapter 12, he says, okay, Here's my conclusion of what the teacher said. This is what this is all about. He said a lot of stuff, and you have to be careful. The author gives a warning at the end of chapter 12. Hey, hey, hey. He said a lot of good stuff, but there are some things you have to be really careful about. Now, let me tell you, as I think about all the things the teacher said, this is what I think it really comes down to. And the reason this is important is because the purpose and the real message of Ecclesiastes is not from the teacher, it's from the author. So, the real purpose and teaching of Ecclesiastes, you will find out when we study chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, which is the last section of the book, and I have no idea when that's coming. I'd like to say, in three weeks, we're going to talk about the real meaning of Ecclesiastes. I don't know. But at the end of the sermon series, we're going to talk about what the whole point of all of this was. So, with that kind of introductory work in chapter 1, verse 1, I want us to look at chapter 1, verse 2. So we're getting close to like everything that I, I prepared for this, for this message. Chapter 1, verse 2. This is the main message of the teacher. 
meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Do you get why I say this is like the worst sermon ever? This is the main point of the teacher. Remember, though, not the author. This is the main point of the teacher. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. In most of our English Bibles, this is how it's translated as meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But here's the problem. This is the main message of the teacher, but it's actually kind of a mistranslation. This is not the best word for this, the, the Hebrew word that he uses here. The Hebrew word he uses is the word hevel, and it literally means smoke or vapor. We've talked about this in church today. That the actual meaning of the word that is translated meaningless is the word for smoke and is the word for vapor. Why? What is, what is the teacher trying to say about life? He's not necessarily saying that everything is pointless and futile and meaningless. What he's trying to say, and I think this is the best way to describe it, that everything is temporary and fleeting, kind of like smoke and vapor, and everything is an enigma or a paradox in the same way that smoke and vapor is. And let me, let, me give you, let me take a moment to explain. When he talks about how everything is hevel, or everything is smoke or vapor, in the same way that smoke comes, rises, and dissipates and is gone, everything is fleeting, everything is temporary. That, I think, makes sense. But he's also trying to make a point that life and everything under this, on this earth and under the sun, as he uses later, the phrase he uses later, is, is like smoke or vapor in that it's confusing. That life is confusing. That, that smoke, when you look at thick smoke, it looks solid, right? It looks like you can even touch it. It looks like you can take a spoon and, and, and take a little bit of the smoke and, and hold it in a spoon or a bubble or a bowl, but you can't. If you try to grasp smoke, all you find is nothing. It looks solid. It looks like it should be a certain way, but then when you try to reach for it and when it seems to make sense, it's not what it seems. Life, everything is temporary and fleeting, but it's also a paradox. It's an enigma. It's, it's confusing. In the same way, like, there is so much good and beauty in the world, but at the same time, there is so much tragedy in the world. When it comes to this idea of, like, what happens to people, right? Like, the Proverbs guy, right, he said, A plus B equals C. If you are righteous, then God will bless you. If you are good... Good things will happen to you. That makes sense. In Ecclesiastes, is like, is that really true? I don't really think that because we see that bad things happen to good people all the time and good things happen to bad people, and I see this in my life. That's why it's confusing. It should be A plus B equals C. God should bless those who are good and, and curse those who are wicked, but I just don't see it, and I'm confused by it. There are so much good things. There are so much love and wonderful things in our world, but when everything's going great and everything seems perfect, tragedy will strike. You know, I know that, that some of you guys are kind of in that place now. There's a, a, a friend, someone that you knew up in the Seattle area who recently passed, like, suddenly, and I know that for many people it's painful and it's hard, and that's exactly what he's talking about. It's like, what, out of nowhere, like, what is happening? I, like, everything seemed good, everything seemed right. This shouldn't have happened. Like, that's what he sees in life, and that's why he says everything is smoke. Everything is vapor. It could be just gone in one second. It could just disappear, and it doesn't make any sense. And this is how he's viewing life. 
And as he looks back on his life, this is how he sees everything. Everything is hevel. Everything is temporary, fleeting. Everything is just confusing. So that's his main message. And that's the main point that he, the teacher, is trying to get across. And what he does for the rest of chapter 1 is he begins to explain why he thinks this. And he talks about what he did to come to this conclusion. And the majority of that discussion is going to be next week. Next week, we're going to talk about all the different things that he did and how that led him to discover that all that stuff that seems really good and important and meaningful, it was all hevel. It was all smoke. It was all temporary. And it was all confusing. And it was, like, not worth it. We're going to talk about that next week. And the reason why this is important is because some of those things you and I do as well. The things that he sought and the things that he tried to do to find meaning, a lot of us put our efforts in there, and his conclusion was, you're not going to find satisfaction and meaning in there. And so this is why it's really important that I want you guys to join us or listen online or watch next week for that message because that's going to be super relatable and it could really identify a couple key areas of our lives that really we need to make a change. But before that, he begins chapter 1, verse 3. So we did 1, we did 2, and now we're on verse 3. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. So he said, everything is hevel, everything is smoke, everything is meaningless. And he follows up by verse 3 saying, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What do people gain from all the work, all the hard work, all the things you invested What do you really gain from it in the end? The stuff that is, quote-unquote, under the sun. I want to take time to to, to unpack these three words, under the sun. And it's a really, really key uh, point to understand for this series because this phrase, under the sun, provides the context to understand what he is even talking about. Because he talks about so much stuff, but it's all within the framework, all within the category of under the sun. Everything is under the sun. So let's talk a little bit about what this under the sun is really about. So just thinking of it from a very physical, physical standpoint, it becomes pretty obvious. Like, what is under the sun? We are under the sun. The earth is under the sun. The world is under the sun. Everything that happens in our life is under the sun. So on the flip side, what is above or over the sun? God, right? Everything else Everything else in creation, everything else in reality is under the sun, but God is above the sun. He is the only thing that is above the sun. So when he talks about things that are under the sun, he's talking about things that have been separated from God. Things that are are disassociated with God. He's talking about things that have been separated from the, the, the spiritual heavenly perspective. He's talking about things that are separated from the values of the kingdom of God. He's talking about things that are separated from, from, from a spiritual point of view. He's talking about things that are separate from the kingdom of God. Right? So these are the things that he's referring to when he talks about work under the sun. He's talking about work separated from God. When he talks about wisdom under the sun, it's wisdom separated from God. When he talks about pleasure, which he talks about a lot, he talks about pleasure separated from God. So this under the sun concept, this is what he's referring to when he says it's all hevel. It's everything under the sun, everything separated from God. This is a really, really key thing to understand. But here's a really interesting thing about the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's what I think is really interesting and also very real and relevant about the book of Ecclesiastes. He, 
is someone who says that everything is meaningless, everything is pointless, all this stuff, what's the point? You would imagine someone like that did not believe in God, right? Like that wouldn't be a big stretch to be that someone that thought everything is meaningless in life didn't believe that God existed. But the writer of Ecclesiastes, he is not an atheist. He believes in God. And I know that's no surprise to you because you know about Solomon and his story. He believes in God, yet when he thinks about God, he talks about God as almost as if he was under the sun too. God who is above the sun, Solomon, when he talks about Ecclesiastes, talks about his relationship in a way where it's like God is now under the sun, which is super confusing. Like, how can you, how can you do that? But listen to the things he says. I'm just share one verse with you. Later on, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13, when he talks about God, he doesn't talk about God a ton, but when he talks about them, this is kind of like the feel of it. He says, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Right, like that's not very, that's kind of worst sermon ever material, right? Oh, God is burdening us. But at the same time, you have to understand that when he says this, he is acknowledging the existence of God. And he is acknowledging that God actually interacts with you. He gives you stuff and takes away stuff. So he's not an agnostic. God interacts with us. He does things, he is personal and he is real. Yet, the way he talks about him is as if God, who was supposed to be above the sun, is brought under the sun. In a way, he has a relationship with God that is earthly. He has a relationship with God that is unspiritual. Now, this is really challenging, and this is very sobering. Because if Solomon does that, is it possible that we too have done that? Is it possible that we have brought God from above the sun under the sun, into the realm of the earth and the world. In other words, what am I saying here? Is it possible that we have a relationship? It is possible to have a relationship with God. It is possible to think about God. It is possible to relate to God. And it is possible to believe in God in an earthly and worldly way. It is possible to have an unspiritual relationship with God. And what this looks like, what this means, what, what this really, really looks like when it comes down to our daily lives and our relationship with God. A relationship with God like this is a relationship where you treat God as if he was like anyone else. If you treat God as if he was the same as anyone else, you treat God as you would treat your boss, you treat God as you would treat a parent, you treat God as you would treat a close friend or a teacher, if you treat God like you would treat anyone else, you might have brought God from above the sun below the sun. And you may have a relationship that is more earthly and more unspiritual than spiritual. You have a relationship that is more earthly and worldly than one that is heavenly. This is a really challenging point. For us, And this is why I really wanted to focus on this verse. Because I'm going to require you to think about and evaluate your relationship with God. How do you treat him? It is possible to have a relationship with God devoid of his glory. It is possible to have a relationship with God where you have removed the glory of God from the relationship. And he is just like anyone else. And you like him 
and you love him and he loves you and you feel good about that and you like talking to him and you like having him around and you like having him in your back pocket. But there is a huge difference between a relationship like that and then a relationship with God who is full of glory and full of awe and majesty and is magnificent. It is a completely different story. So I want you to really think about that. What is my relationship with God like? It is possible to de-glorify God in our relationship with him. And what this looks like is a relationship with, without awe. Yet you are not in awe of God. It is a relationship where, where you have no respect. You don't respect God. Yeah, you, you love him and, and he's great in everything and, and you like the things that he says. But there is a lack of, of divine respect for the Holy One of God. There is a lack of what... In what Bible writers use in the language of Bible writers, fear of God. When you de-glorify God, you, don't, you, you find no awe, you find no majesty. He's just like this close friend. And that's great, right? It's good to have this presence of God, this closeness of God in our lives. Like to, and I'm not really talking about that. I'm not talking about the fact that God is close and near and you can pray to him like a friend. Like that stuff is amazing and that stuff is wonderful. But does your relationship allow for wonder and awe? Do you live your life in awe of the God you say you worship? Do you live life in, his, in wonder of who he is and what he does in your life? And I know that's very like spiritual language, so let me get real with you what this looks like. What this looks like when you have a relationship with God that you've taken from above the sun and brought him down low, brought him under the sun. What it looks like to have an earthly, unspiritual relationship with God is when you treat God like you are in charge. You approach God like you are in charge, not that he is in charge. For those of you guys who have children, do your kids ever do this? Where they talk to you like they're in charge? Do you know how infuriating that is? Man, that is so rough. Like, oh, it's so hard when your children cheat, treat you like. But that, 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 this relationship where we bring God under the sun is a relationship where we treat God like we are in charge. We treat God like we can bend him to our will. We treat God like we can wheel and deal with him. We say, God, we can, we can negotiate with him. God, I'll do this. Come on, let's be honest. How many have done this? I'll do this, God, if you would do this. If you would just do this for me, if you would just help me pass this test, if you would just help me get this job, if you would just help me get this girl, I will be good. I'll read the Bible every day. I'll never miss church. Come on. When we wheel and deal with God, try to negotiate with him, we got to question that. When we treat God like we are in charge, when we can negotiate with him, when we treat God like when we treat God as he, he's just like anyone else. You interact with him like you would interact with anybody else. Where we begin to feel like God exists to serve us instead of us existing to serve him. Where we come to God and for the most part, all we basically talk about is what we want. And the only times we ask God what he wants is when it has to do with our life decisions. 
That's like the only time, let's be honest, that's like mostly the only time we ask God what he wants is, what school should I go to? What do you want, God? Who should I marry? What do you want, God? What job or field should I go into? What do you want? But really, is that not about us still? And we, 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 we tend to conveniently forget to ask God what he wants when we have that argument with the coworker. In that moment, we didn't ask him what God wanted, did we? In that moment, we didn't care what God wanted us to do. We conveniently forget to ask God what he wants when we get cut off on the freeway. In that moment, do you ask God, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? We conveniently forget to ask God before we decided to binge Netflix. But we ask God when we want direction for our lives, for our decisions, but we don't really think to ask God about what he wants in terms of our daily activities and the way we spend our time and the way we spend our money. Right, so this is, these are the ways that we can bring God from above the sun, under the sun, and to relate to him in this way. It's a relationship without awe. It's a relationship without respect. It's a relationship without, in biblical language, fear. It's a relationship with God that is without wonder. And I don't think this and the closeness and the, 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 the intimacy we can have with God are mutually exclusive. We can have both. And that's actually how it's supposed to be. But this writer of Ecclesiastes, he's struggling in his relationship with God. He knows God exists. And this is the danger of this. This is why we're talking about it. He knows God exists, but because he's brought God under the sun and he relates to God like that, he's wondering, yeah, God exists, but does it even matter? And for many people, when you're in that place, that's where it takes you. You see, you can have a relationship with God where you have brought him down, or at least your image and perspective and your theology and your understanding of him has been brought down to an earthly level. You can do that. And when you have a relationship with God that is under the sun, that relationship with God is a relationship that is under the sun. And when you have a relationship with God that is under the sun, that too will be like everything else under the sun. And the conclusion is, it is hevel. My relationship with God is hevel. It is smoke. It is vapor. It feels temporary and fleeting. One moment God is with me, but the next moment he's gone. I don't know where he is. Today it seems it's so inconsistent. I felt strong and close to God this week, but next week I don't know what's going on. It feels confusing. It feels enigmatic and paradoxical. You thought God was this way, but you can't, you can't get him to do what you thought you could get him to do. He's not answering the way you wanted him to answer. He's not doing the things that you wanted him to do in the time that you wanted him to do it in. And you get confused. And when you have that relationship and you struggle in that relationship, eventually after time, you will reach the conclusion that this whole God thing, this church thing, this Bible thing, all of it is just hevel. And that's what I do not want for you. And I don't think you want that for you. I don't think you look at your faith and your relationship with God and you want it to go that route. I don't think so. So what we have to do as we conclude this time, what we have to do is we have to take God. If you've brought him under the sun, you need to uplift him back over the sun. You need to reclaim God's glory. You need to rededicate yourself to him. You need to, to put him back up and re-experience awe and wonder and majesty and fear and respect, all that good stuff. And so I want to close today 
by talking a little bit about how we can do that. How can you rediscover awe of God? How can you rediscover the wonder that maybe you once felt with God? And I think there's a lot of things we can do. One of the things we do here every single week is we praise and worship. You know, the moments, the times that we come together and sing, those songs lift our minds, lift God up, help us to realize he is not just like anyone in here. He's not like anyone else. He is the only one like that. He is the holy one. And so in those times of worship, we're raised up to the true perspective of who God is and how great and big and wonderful and majestic he is. And so that's one thing you can do is come to worship. And when you sing, sing, praise, think about how big God is. Don't just sit there and just stand and read the words. Worship, worship him. But here's what I want you guys to understand as we close today's message. When it comes to awe, when it comes to being in awe of God, this is what you got to understand. Awe requires time and obedience. Being in awe of God requires time and obedience. It requires time and obedience. The Apostle Paul has this one verse in Romans 11 where he's like really in awe of God. And listen to what he says. Romans eleven thirty three. He says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, right? That's awe. That's wonder. That's majesty. He's like, oh, God is amazing. How great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. But you have to understand something about this verse. You can never get to this place. You cannot understand how impossible it is to understand his ways if you've never given the time to try to understand his ways and reach the conclusion, ah, oh, I just can't get it. Right? If, if I'm telling you today, you read this verse, you're like, oh, it's impossible to understand God's ways. You can't just take that at face value and feel awe for God. You have to dig. You have to search. You have to find and then come to the conclusion and realize, oh, yeah, it is big. It is amazing. It is bigger than me. You have to put the time in. Awe requires time. Awe requires moments where you stop and stop what you're doing and take a moment and be like, wow, what is happening here in this moment? Awe requires you to slow down and to look around your life and see what God is doing. Now, people often say that you can really feel in awe of God when you go into nature and when you go to hike and you go camping, and, and that's fantastic, right? And some of you guys are like that. But you don't get that if you hike and just look down at the trail and just try to get to your destination. What do you have to do? You have to slow down and look at the mountains and look at the forest and look at the skies and look at the animals and the birds. you got to slow down. That's how you sense the awe of God. That's how you become in awe of God. It requires time. When you look at your life, you have to take those moments to reflect and be like, wow, look what God has done. Look where he has led me. It takes time. But it also takes obedience. Because it says in this verse how impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. You will never try to be able to understand his ways if you never try to follow his ways. You cannot experience awe of God if you don't obey him and see what he does with those simple acts of obedience. Those little things that you did that you think that you thought were not important when God moved on your heart and you did those things by obeying, you give God the opportunity for him to show you what he can do with that. And that's where awe comes from. But you will never have that if you do not obey. 
Think of it, obedience like an opportunity for God to show you his faithfulness. Obedience as an opportunity to show you how amazing and wonderful he is. Awe requires time and obedience. So if you want to put God back up over the sun, and you want a relationship with God that is proper and healthy, and you relate to God in a heavenly spiritual way, take moments, take time, take courage to move in obedience, take time to think about what God is doing in your life and is doing something big and something different in your life. Take those moments. That's how you rediscover awe for the Lord. That's how you rediscover wonder for the Lord. So that's verses 1, 2, and 3. It's deep and it's rich. This is not what I expected. When I began this series, I was like, all right, we'll just plow through chapter 1, chapter 2. Let's get to it, right? But as I was studying, I was like, man, this is so important that we understand that it is possible for us to have a relationship with God where we've removed him from above the sun and brought him down to an earthly level. So important for us, and so important for us to be challenged that way. So that's chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. I hope that today you will walk away not just thinking that everything is meaningless and everything is hevel, but that you would be taking moments to reflect on your relationship with God and to ask the question, do I see my relationship with God as hevel? Is it smoke? Is it vapor to me? And if it is, the question I have to ask you, where is God? Is he above the sun or is he under the sun? Where have you place him, and he has allowed you to make that decision where you will place him, above the sun or under sun. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. And so next week, we'll pick up on verse 4 in our series, The Worst Sermon Ever. Let's pray. God in heaven, I know I was so challenged by this message, Lord, as I was uh, writing it, as I was preparing it, Father. It was really hard for me to to come to grips with the fact that you're calling him out and calling me out in so many different ways. And Lord, I hope, God, that we are challenged. I hope that we are, our eyes are open to, to maybe some areas of our life or some areas of our relationship with you that requires change, God. God, I want to give this time to you, Father, as we explore the book of Ecclesiastes for the next few weeks, that you would lead us into the truth that you want us to hear. And Father God, I ask that Right now, you would help us to rediscover how amazing and wonderful and how huge you are, Lord. Lord, help us to recapture and rediscover a sense of awe before you. Let us be in wonder of you. And God, as we close our service in worship, I pray that our minds and our hearts and our perspectives would be raised above the sun and that we would see you for who you are and that we would truly worship you today. You hear me pray. Amen.